Hey everybody, I'm Dr. Andy Rourke. I am your host for this, the inaugural episode of the Kona Shame Show. What is the Kona Shame Show, you ask? Well, listen, you are probably familiar with the Uncharted Veterinary Podcast. It's a podcast I do with my dear friend, the brilliant Stephanie Goss, and we put it out on Wednesdays, and it is all about leading teams and growing practices. We love the podcast. We're going to continue to do the podcast. The podcast is growing like crazy. I've got to be honest with you. I am enjoying this so much, and I am having so much fun. I want to do I want to do more. I want to do another podcast and I want to talk about medicine and life in medicine. And that is the Cone of Shame show. My plan is to drop these episodes on Sundays and Uncharted will still be coming out on Wednesdays. I don't know if this is going to be a good idea. I think it will be good. This is something that I have wanted to exist for a long time. I need to hear from you as we go if this is something that's worthwhile, if you're here for it if it's valuable. So we are launching a, um, I don't know what you'd call it, a a trial phase, a exploratory phase, a pilot phase. That's it. We're going to launch a pilot season of the Cone of Shame show. And based on what you guys say, we'll decide if we're going to keep doing it, if it's going to be something that we do once or twice a month, if we do it every week. It's really going to be based on what you guys think and what the response is. So Here's what I would like. Take a listen to this episode. It's the very first episode with the amazing Dr. Sarah Boston. And it is a bit controversial. And we get into some stuff. And so I hope that you will enjoy it and uh, want to hear more of the show. In the coming weeks, you'll hear more episodes. What I need you to do is either shoot me an email. You can email me at podcast at unchartedvet.com or go into iTunes, and this is preferred, and write an honest review of what you think. And if you think this is a great show, then we'll keep doing it. And if you're like, I'm not into the medical part, just love the business part, then, you know, we'll do a couple of these episodes and maybe this will go away and just be an experiment that we tried that didn't work out. So, totally up to you. This is in your hands Let me know if you want more, if you want less, if this is not of interest, if this is the best thing ever. And I'm going to try to make a show that you're going to love. So with that, welcome to the Kona Shame Show. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Dr. Sarah Boston. She is a longtime friend of mine. She's a veterinary surgical oncologist. Um, you, you, were, you were a Canadian, and then you became a Floridian, and, and very quickly you went back to being a Canadian after, after that. Um, you are the co-founder of The Cage Liner, which is a satirical website, which I love and adore it um it is my favorite thing on facebook and i'm not kidding when i say that you wrote a book called lucky dog it is one of the veterinary books that i have read and and actually recommend because it's not warm fuzzy fluff it is you discussing your experience with thyroid cancer as a veterinarian you do um you are in clinical practice and you also do stand-up comedy thanks for being here thanks for having me all right, cool. You wrote an article. So 
you and I have, um, we've been friends for a long time and your, your writing has always been something that, that we've discussed and I've always been a fan of, of, of your writing. But you wrote something recently that, that just really took fire and that a lot of people are really interested in. I, I think it's fascinating. I've been looking for somebody to discuss this topic with. You wrote a piece uh, on Medium called Media's Emotional Blackmail is Killing Veterinarians. And I just thought that maybe you and I could get on today and kind of unpack that. And I just want to sort of discuss that and kind of walk it through for people who maybe didn't see the article or people who did see it and are still sort of processing, what does this mean? So let's start with that. So so why did you write the article, first of all? Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. And it's I'm excited to see you. I'm seeing you on Skype and to be talking to you um, and uh, talking about this really important subject. I There was a couple of high-profile cases um, in Canada, but I imagine there's been the same thing in the States for veterinarians where it's a scenario of someone brings a puppy in or a dog in, usually it's to an emergency hospital. They don't have the means to pay for treatment. And it's something serious like parvovirus or something that really needs care or the dog is going to die. I mean, it's really, it's very black and white. Um, and I, I know that our colleagues are going through all the options and trying to come up with a solution. And in the end, they don't want to euthanize a dog because that's not something we want to do for treatable diseases. And so they'll offer up surrender. And so then the, the puppy's legally signed over, treated usually by rescue groups that, groups that will help out. Sometimes it's, it's people in the clinic that take on the financial burden of that and, and take on an additional pet that they weren't planning to have. Um, and then the next part of that scenario is that that family goes to the news and says that, you know, they didn't understand what they were signing and the vet took their puppy. And um, I think just the unfairness of the media's coverage of that uh, really struck a nerve for me. And I think based on the reaction of that article uh, with a lot of our colleagues, um, cause it's just, it's just so unfair and I, I don't do well with things when they're unfair, but just, you know, no acknowledgement of what these veterinarians are going through. Um, and really that that's not their dog and they're really just trying to do the best they can for that animal. So I think we all have, we all either are, or we have those people that we work with who are the ones who will take the broken animal, you know, and, and you know that they don't want another kitten but they will take it. And at some point they even get labeled that way. And there's a kitten that comes in and everyone turns and looks at Donna. And, 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 and it's, it's, it's this kind of, it's kind of this position that we get ourselves in. Why do you use the term emotional blackmail? So let's, let's talk about what that means. And then we'll start to put these pieces back together. Yeah. So that's not my term. I think, I don't even know where I saw it. I saw it relatively recently, like probably in the last six months or so. And I, it actually, for me, it was kind of like this revelation. I was like, oh, that's what that is, you know? And it's not just this scenario I'm describing where the media kind of vilifies veterinarians uh, for taking people's puppies away, but it's also just the things clients say to us. And if you actually tune into that, because I've been doing this lately, it happens every single day, comments people make, and it's usually about money. Um, but, you know, I recently had a client in who told my front desk staff and my technician that she was not, she was, she was bringing a very old cat in for a big cancer surgery. So there's a lot involved in that too. I mean, that's not for everybody, but she made the choice that she wanted to do that. It's, it's expensive. But as she was signing the, the paperwork and bringing the pet in, she said to our, our staff, I can't afford groceries now. I don't think I'm going to be able to afford my rent. 
Um, and my technician was really upset about it. And I said, well, that's emotional blackmail. You know, that's on her. She's making these choices for her pet. And she's been provided with quotes for services that she would like us to do. If she can't afford groceries or her rent, um, I mean, that's her decision making. She'll have to, you know, work on that. It's not for my technician to feel guilty or sad or, you know, all those things that people make us feel. And I think just giving it a name uh, is helpful. Like, I, I think it's helpful if you can stop stop someone in that moment and say, hey, that's emotional blackmail. Don't 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 take that in and don't take that into yourself. Um, and I think, you know, we, we know there's a lot of problems with our profession of the stress and the compassion fatigue that a lot of our colleagues and technicians or everyone in the industry is going through. And I think it's good to kind of stop for a second and say, what's happening here? Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. When I was looking at emotional blackmail, it really is, for me, it really is that moment when it's a, it's subtly presented, but it really is. If you make me pay this money, which is the defined price for the service, then I am going to make you feel guilty. Like that, that is kind of the blackmail. And, and it gets even bigger when the media is involved because especially when you have people who are angry and they're like, if you, if you make me pay this money for my pet, I'm going to tell others that you only care about money and that you are, you really don't care about pets. And that really matters to us. So now it is this blackmail of do what I want or I'm going to punish you with this information, which may or may not be true. And so I, I do like that term emotional blackmail in that regard. Do you think that clients mean to do it? Do you think that I, I think some of them do and some of them don't. I think some of the times it's just a reflex of like, oh, I probably own a wing in this hospital. Those little things that people say, but I, they say it all the time. So it's happening to us. It's not just that it happened once and you think, well, that was kind of annoying or you don't even really take it in. It's just constant. It's just constantly how people are interacting with veterinarians. So I, I don't know if some of them do mean it. Some of them will just, they just need to get it out and say, wow, this is expensive. I wasn't expecting this. They just, you know, and if they need to do that, I guess it's okay. But I think for us as professionals, like, we need to sort of have a little bit of a barrier and not, not take it all in. Uh, some people absolutely mean to do it. You know, they're, they're very directed things that they say. Um, you know, the classic, if you loved animals, you would do it for free. I, you know, we we're talking about stand-up. I have that in a little part of my stand-up act. And people that aren't veterinarians, when I say that, there's people in the audience that gasp because they can't believe that someone would say that to a veterinarian. And I'm like, why are you gasping? Like this happens all the time, you know, maybe not that exact phrase, but that sentiment is, is said to veterinarians all the time. But so yeah, the people that say things like that, they definitely mean it. They absolutely mean it. Well, I really like the approach that you take when you talk about emotional blackmail, because when you sort of come at this in the article and when we talk, I think you and I both see the same thing. And it's like, first of all, there's the intentionality part of it. And I, I, I agree with you completely that some have this intention and, and most, I think most do not. I think a lot of people throw out these offhanded comments, like I paid for a wing of this building. And I think a lot of those people, I think they honestly think they're being funny. You know, it really depends on, on the spirit in which they say it, but a lot of them, they, they don't think anything about it, or they say the exact same thing at the grocery store or to their auto mechanic. But because of our experiences, I think they hit us a bit differently. Some people do mean to say it, and that that's a different subject. But but they do say it. I cannot get my head around anything that we can do to stop pet owners from saying that. You know what I mean? Or to even to educate them and be like, hey, look, 
when you say this, it's, you know, it affects me in a toxic way that you probably don't mean. Please don't say that. I can't figure out how to actually honestly say something like that or communicate that. So I agree with you. I think we're talking about our choice of whether or not to take this in because I don't think we can stop people from communicating it. Do you? Um, I have. <laughs> what, what did you do? Uh, that same client, um, there was other issues going on, which I, I you know, I won't go into those, but uh, I sat her down and I said, when you say that to my staff, it's really upsetting for them. It's called emotional blackmail. I need you not to do that. And yeah, I don't know. I would know if I was just emboldened by my article or just like, but I was like, yeah, I'm going to call people on it. I think, you know, and, and I think when someone says I own a wing of this hospital, I think it's okay to say, but actually you don't like honest, but you don't, you don't <laughs> think that because, you know, I, I actually, I know, I don't know. And maybe I'm different and, and I, I'm, I've been a vet for 23 years, so maybe I'm getting crusty, but I've started feeling like I actually do need to sometimes gently or directly say that's not okay. Yeah. To start to, to start to push back, you know, when we go through this and we start to talk about the media and how veterinarians get treated in, in these matters, when there's a client that's upset or they, they, they're unable to pay for emergency surgery or things like that. And they go to social media or God forbid, it gets picked up by the local news, which absolutely happens. And we've seen local news stations run with stories of pet owners who feel that they were mistreated. We really get, we really get crushed. And I think that even if it doesn't get picked up by the media, if it turns up as a one-star Yelp review, I feel like we take these things really hard. You know, I, I think that, that anyone who says we don't care, I think that that's devastating for a lot of vets. And I do start to wonder if it's not time for us to, I want to see, I don't say toughen up necessarily, but maybe accept that we're not going to make everyone happy. And you know what I mean? And there, there, there's going to be some, and maybe, maybe it is time for us to start to, to be more assertive when we say, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not going to do that, or I'm not okay with that, or I don't agree with that and not worry so much about pet owners going out and saying, I can't believe this vet clinic would treat someone this way. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the thing that struck me, there was one, one situation, this isn't really answering what you said, but you just made me think of it. Um, it happened in Quebec and it was Christmas Eve. So it was at an emergency clinic on Christmas Eve. And so you know what these guys are going through, right? And so, and then there's a puppy and it's got parvo. I, I think it had parvo. I can't remember exactly, but I think that was the scenario. It was just this past Christmas. And there was no mention in this news coverage. Like it was on TV. It was national news. They showed the clinic. People were complaining about the clinic. There's been clinics that have had to shut down with this kind of coverage and people getting threatened. I mean, it's getting pretty crazy. And no one said, hey, they saved a puppy over Christmas. Like some of these staff members were not with their families. They're just saving this parvo puppy. I mean, no one, no one really ever stopped to reflect on that. Um, and then the other side to that is that some of these hospitals now, um, corporate practices are just saying, you don't get to do that anymore. That's no longer an option. You don't get to have a animal signed over to anybody. And if, if they can't pay and the puppy's going to die, you must humanely euthanize it, which I mean, this is going to sound awful. I'll probably get, I might get trolled for this, but you know, in some cases, like then it's done, right? Like then it's over and it relieves the staff members who are, you know, like Donna, <laughs> poor Donna, who's like, 
Dawn is getting paid not very well. Dawn is taking, she's got five cats. Most of them have three legs. Someone's got one eye. This one's epileptic. And, and I mean, those technicians are amazing. I work with people like that. They, and I always feel like, wow, they have a bigger heart than I do sometimes. Like I, I can't believe what they do, but they shouldn't have to. I wonder as, as veterinarians, if we have a certain responsibility to protect the technicians from themselves in a way, you know what I mean? Like when, when I'm in the room and I'm dealing with this and I come out and I close the door and say, Hey, Donna, are you, are you looking for another cat? I'm, I'm kind of putting this on Donna and she didn't ask for that. You know, um, I wonder if, I wonder what my responsibility is as far as saying, I don't think my staff should have to bear this burden. I don't know that I should even pass that on to Donna and put it on her to say, Hey, we're going to put this kitten to sleep. If you don't step up and take this cat, that that's, I don't know that that's fair, even though I think everyone in the moment is trying to do the right thing. We're all like, Oh, the life of this cat above all else. You know, it goes back to the experience that a lot of pet owners have where they come to us and this is an emergency and they look at us and they're like, if you cared, you would help me. And they will never understand that for themselves, this is a one-time event, right? This is the one time in their life they're at the emergency clinic with their best friend. But this is every day, all day for us, you know? And so it's a one-time request for them. It's a 1,000 time request for us this year. And yeah, so, you just, sorry. No, go ahead. You just made me think of something. And we do, people have done it to me. Um, I mean, I have, you know, if you guys want to see the most perfect dog, you can look on my book cover. His name is Rumble. And I, everyone knows how much I love Rumble. But if a dog comes in that looks like Rumble that needs a home, people will say, hey, Sarah, this one looks like Rumble. I don't want two Rumbles. I have one perfect Rumble. And when you say to someone, and I've had people say this to me, exactly what you just said. If you don't take him, he's going to be put down. That's emotional blackmail. Like we do it yeah. to each other, right? And so we, we, we have to absolutely stop doing that. You know, if someone wants a puppy or a kitten, like we're veterinary professionals, we know where to get them. Yeah. <laughs> like we know where to get healthy ones that people don't want. And then we're trying to make people take sick ones that are going to need thousands of dollars worth of care. Um, and they don't want, you know, like no one wants them. Um, so I actually just had an experience at the clinic and I, w- I became quite haunted by it. I think I did it to myself as a cat that this beautiful cat, someone threw it out of the car window on the freeway. Um, and it came in and it looked like it had head trauma. And for whatever reason, the, the ha- particular animal control that brought it in just told us to euthanize it. And it was just one of those days, uh, one of our ER doctors had already euthanized three animals that day. It just was a really bad day in the clinic. You know, those clinics, like I, I literally was putting a tracheostomy in a dog and like, it was just a lot going on. And he was just such a beautiful cat. I don't actually want another cat. Um, and I just said, well, I'll just pay for him to be in a cage for 24 hours. Like, I'll just pay for that. Like, cause someone has to pay for it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, and I was like, I was like, the, I was like, I don't even know what I'm going to do with him. I'm like texting my husband, who's an equine vet and saying like, do you know, can we get a, someone, does someone need a barn cat? Like, I don't know what to do with this animal, but it's a beautiful cat. And for some reason it got to me. I don't even know why. Cause I usually am pretty, like I can kind of put the walls up, but for some reason, and then I named him Parmigiano Reggiano, shouldn't have named him. And then <laughs> I was like in the middle of doing this tracheostomy and, and, you know, I was the clinic hero for like an hour. Yeah. And then they came back and were like, actually, Sarah, like he's got multiple fractures. We took an x-ray of his leg. And then I was just in the middle of surgery. So, and they said, we're going to put him down. And I was like, okay. 
And then it was done. And I'm still upset about it. I'm still upset that I didn't, but I, you know, that I didn't pay thousands. I'd probably fix it myself, but still have to pay, you know, and, and then I don't even know what I was going to do with this cat. And I'm upset that he's, I'm upset about what happened to him. I'm upset that I wasn't, didn't have enough time to think about, should I fix him? What should I do? And now he's just gone. But, you know, so I think we do do it to our, each other and ourselves. I mean, I, I, maybe I emotionally blackmail myself. Is that a thing? Yeah. I was just wondering, like, <laughs> like, honestly, so if we put you on the therapy couch here for a second, for a second we're yeah, like, what's going on, Andy? I mean, this is, cause you're right. This is one of the reasons that you and I get along so well. We both have pretty similar perspectives in a, in a lot of ways, and especially on personal boundaries and things like I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do that. And, and, you know, you've got healthy boundaries and you clearly make decisions about what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. And then from a logical standpoint, you say you have no attachment to this kitten. Uh, there's no owner in you know, involved. This cat has got multiple fractures. It's suffering. You know, you have sort of zero responsibility. And I don't think that anyone, if you went to them and said, hey, do you think that Dr. Sarah Boston has a responsibility to uh, a cat that gets brought in by animal control, has multiple fractures and is damaged and she doesn't <laughs> doesn't want or need a cat? Does she have the responsibility to to fix that pet and home that cat, that pet and pay for that pet's care for the next 17 years? <laughs> no logical person would be like, yes, I think she has that responsibility. But still, you have this this feeling of guilt from not doing it, which I totally understand and I, I, I wonder, I wonder why, you know, why, why do we, why do we feel that way? Cause I've had those exact same feelings of guilt. And I think we're coming back around to the whole scenario where a pet owner can't pay for a pet. And we say, well, if you relinquish it to us, we'll take care of it. There's some sort of logic there. Where I think there's some feeling of responsibility there. And I'm not exactly sure what it is or how to define it. It doesn't get allocated evenly because Donna takes all the pets yeah, and other people don't take any of the pets. And when I went to work at my clinic, no one said, Hey, Andy, part of your responsibility is taking these pets into your house. And so I don't know, how does that guilt get allocated and how does it get a, such a, a foothold with us? Yeah, it feels kind of, I think for me, it's, it's, I'm pretty good at having those boundaries. I think most of the time and, um, because I think you have to, and sometimes I feel like, well, maybe I'm getting kind of cold or, you know, but I just have to say, well, yes, this animal's in front of you right now, but like go to any shelter. I worked at a shelter when I was a kid, you know, I, <laughs> there's, I mean, it's, it's kind of endless, you know? And so you, you, but I think there are times where for whatever reason you have an attachment to an animal. It, it, I don't even know why, like, I don't know why in that case of that cat. And then I think there are, you know, it is often technicians, sometimes it's veterinarians, but in my experience, it's often the technicians who just say, I'll take them, I'll, you know, I'll help them. And, it, and I, I think part of it's that feeling of helplessness. There's just so much crap, so many animals, you know, it was so upsetting to me that someone would throw this beautiful animal out a window of a freeway. Like, I just think that's just cruelty on top of everything, you know, and I, and, uh, I think sometimes you just feel like you want to do something. I, I was, I was sort of thinking that the unfairness of it all is a big part of it for me. You know, the unfairness that this cat through no fault of its own gets born to some jerk who throws it out of a window of a moving car. Like that just seems deeply unjust, unjust, you know what I mean? And, and sort of like you were saying earlier is like, you know, when I see unfairness, that really bothers me. 
I think that that's, I think that's part of the trigger as well, as well of the unfairness of the situation, I think catches us in a way that, that you wouldn't necessarily even expect. Yeah, I would, I definitely have an overdeveloped sense of justice. It's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's a problem. But. It causes problems, Andy, honestly. You yeah. know, what, what has, what has helped, helped me repeatedly with these concrete walls is my wife is, um, she, so she has terrible allergies. So she's allergic to cats, like really allergic to cats. And she has allergies to dust and dander. So even dogs are kind of a, we, we can have a dog, we can have a dog, but she's pretty unyielding about the idea that I am not bringing home pets. And part of it is probably the allergy thing. Another part of it is that my wife is a strong, confident woman and partner. And the idea that I would commit us to 17 years of care without her being involved in the discussion and the decision, like she's not, I think that by itself is, is, a, is a real hurdle for her sort of mentally to get over. And so having someone at home who's not there when that kitten comes in I think that that has, I think that's gotten me out of a lot of pinches. I hate to say it that way, but it's true. You know, um, it's one thing to take a pet. It's another thing to take a pet and then have to justify that to a spouse who is seriously not on board. Uh, I, I wonder, I wonder how, how important is that external person to you? So your husband's an equine veterinarian. Does he, does he, does he care if, if new animals come home with you or no? Oh, definitely. No, he like this scenario, this cat, I was like trying to think if it could be a barn cat because we, we live where he works and there's barn cats. And I was like, well, maybe I could do that. And it was actually look kind of exotic. So I thought I could pretend it was an exotic cat and gift it to my parents. This was another <laughs> really good idea I had because they, they'd probably be down with that. Uh, my parents definitely have more of that, like, let's take them in kind of mentality. Um, they, say they love animals. Um, but no, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't just bring home a pet and expect that my husband was going to be okay with it. It was a big deal when we got our dog. And I, I, you know, I wonder about getting two dogs, but I really like having one dog because I take him everywhere. And so no, and yeah, we're not looking for more pets. And I think you do have to kind of have those boundaries, but it's, you know, speaking of boundaries, like you have a boundary because there's another person that you have to consider, but really if you're single, you should consider it anyway. Right. Like it shouldn't right. have to be like, Oh, I don't have to. It's, it's kind of like, you know, I don't have children. And so people who have kids will, well, they get to leave because they have to do this or they have, they get to get Christmas off. But the, you know, the barren ladies, like we just got to work the Christmas. So I don't know. I think we just have to have boundaries just because we have boundaries. And then whatever the personal situation is, it is, but it's a lot easier when you can say, yeah, no, Steve's not going to be okay with that. And so, and then people will kind of back off, but you just made me realize that there's emotional blackmail in the clinic. Oh, there, I, I think I, they're totally, yeah, I think, I never thought I think it, it comes like this, from a, Andy. well, I think it comes from a place of virtue where we all want what's best for the pet. So we all look at each other, but there is this weight of, are you going to be the one who steps up, you know, and, and takes, and takes care of this. And you're exactly right too. And I definitely didn't mean to imply that, <laughs> that, that you turn and you look at the single lady and you're like, Hey, it's a cat. You, you're not, you don't have a man at home. Take this other cat. Like that's no, I didn't mean that either. We're going to get so much trouble, Andy, but no, I, I, I just mean like, you got to create boundaries for yourself. That's what I was trying to say. Right. It, that's, and you're exactly right, too. It is, has been helpful for me to have a secondary person who forms a boundary uh, for things like that. I think 
I think so. Let's weave this together with a point that we were making earlier. So we should have boundaries. And I don't think that we should feel obligated into taking on these multi-year, you know, 15-year obligations. Like that's not part of the job that we necessarily signed up for. And if you want to do it, then you should do it. But I think that maybe it's time for us to be kind of jerks and push back and go, that's not my obligation. If I choose to do that, then I choose to do that. But I do not believe that that is my responsibility. And so I don't think I have a responsibility to take pets that come into our clinic. Like I don't have that. I don't believe my techs have that. I don't think their doctors have that. And now we bring in what we're starting to see recently with the media, which is where people come in, they have a pet, say it's got parvo, it's got, um, for me often it's orthopedic injuries or, yeah. um, or, or things like that, where it's something that's surgical that could be fixed, but it involves a surgery, there's a high price, or it's, it's emergency care that has a, a significant price, but the animal could be saved. The person says, I do not have any money. And then the veterinarian who's trying to do what's best says, why don't you give me the dog? And I will take it and I will fix it and find it a home. And so that transaction happens. And then people get home and that's when they go, wait a second. If you could do the procedure and then just give the dog away, why in the hell couldn't you do the procedure and give it back to me who loves it more than anyone? And that's the thought they have in their head. And it's a, it's a valid question. Like there's some ethical kind of gymnastics that get done there. And so oftentimes they, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I think that there's guilt. I think that there's anger. I think that there's shame. I think that there's uh, loss and sorrow. And I think all of those emotions bubble up. And one of the easiest ways to deal with those emotions, if you're a human being, is to squish them together, turn them into rage and then point them at an external person and fire them away. And I think that that's what happens a lot to veterinarians. And then you see these people in Facebook groups, you see them on their, on their social media, on Twitter, and, or they, they call their friend who is a reporter at the local TV show, or the TV station. And, and now this is out in the world and the veterinarian is the evil monster who took their dog away when they couldn't pay for services. Yeah, and I, it's kind of amazing to me that that's a scoop. Like, that's a new scoop. Like, that happens every day. Like, what, what, why, why is the media suddenly like, we've got a really hot story here, like a sick dog that someone didn't have money for? I'm like, every day we have that. Like, why is this a story? And then, you know, why aren't there more stories about all the amazing things that veterinarians do? I mean, I know there are some, but it just seems like, why is that a story? Right. Well, this is what I really love to talk to you about is, is the role of the media in attacking veterinarians. And so I think that veterinarians get some good press when, when there's a, a heartwarming story and people will say, Hey, in local news, a veterinarian did this great thing. And everybody, just like when you, when you were talking about in the clinic, everybody celebrates for an hour. They're like, Oh, that's great. And then they go <laughs> on and they're done. I think that the media that we have today is so desperate. Like they are desperate for revenue. They are desperate for eyeballs and advertising. There's just so much noise out there trying to get people's attention and no one's paying for news. Everybody's consuming it sort of passively. And then they just need you to look at their stupid pop-up ads, please God, so we don't have to lay off more staff. And so they are desperate. And what we know is, especially on social media, 
the biggest driver of traffic and content uh, and, and engagement is outrage. It's outrage and it's fear. And so I think about like, oh, well, okay, I get the outrage thing and I get the fear thing. Why do, why do veterinarians keep getting slammed? And my, my theory is this, you know, there is no greater villain than the villain who pretends to be good and then is bad. You know what I mean? It's the, the person who's a charity worker and we find out they're really taking advantage of poor people. Like that is the scum of the earth. And we immediately, like our sense of justice flares up. And so when you're trying to come up, if you're the media and you're trying to craft a villain, I just don't think that the veterinarian who doesn't care about pets, I don't know that there's a bigger villain than that that can be created. And it's, it's, it's garbage, right? It's, it's, it's a straw man. But if they can convince the, the pet, everybody loves pets. You convince the pet owning world, which is everybody. Hey guys, there's this veterinarian that does not care about animals and just wants to get money. And, and if you, if you didn't have enough money, they would take your best friend away from you and laugh. <laughs> and people are horrified, you know, like it's this horrible villain. So I think that they, I think they try to set that up because it really does fire people up as like, there are like, it's like Dr. Evil, like here's a doctor, but he's evil. And it's like, this is an animal lover who's really horrible. And so I think that they, I think they set that up as like, this person is a hypocrite because they took this oath to help animals and now they're not helping animals and we all hate a hypocrite. And then the fear part comes in because I think that we all who love pets can quickly catch on and imagine the fear of our best friend needing care and the heartless person who could give it to it just standing there with her arms crossed because you don't have their money. And, and I just think that that is a simple narrative that hits people in an emotional way and it just sets them off and they click and they share and they comment like crazy. And so I think that we are targets for the media and I think that we're going to continue to be targets, targets for the media for that reason. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I also think we need to get a little bit tougher as far as sticking up for ourselves. Like at least my experience, like when they've done some of the interviews, the vets are all like, I can't comment on this case. <laughs> sure you can. Like, come on, like you've got to be able to say what happened and why didn't they have insurance? Why didn't they have the means to take care of a pet? A pet is a big responsibility financially. Educate people about insurance, you know, but I, it seems like we kind of like retreat and say as little as possible when these things happen. Um, and I'm not saying it's easy and I know there are confidentiality issues around that, but I feel like we never get a chance to say what we really think. We never, we never really defend ourselves because it looks so bad when we're saying, well, it costs money. Like that's the way it is. You know, then you make yourself, you already look bad. Now you look even worse, but I don't know. Like, I think we need to be a little bit more tough and, uh, and stand up for ourselves because ultimately that's not my dog, you know, like inspector Clouseau, it's not my dog. That's your dog. Like <laughs> you have to take care of your dog. I take care of my dog and like, I take care of the health of animals when they come to my hospital, but I can't take them all on as if they're all my pets. I don't have the capacity to do that. And I, sh and you're, like you said, none of us should have to do that. There was a, there was a case recently in Missouri where an animal rescue had a, had a, a dog. I, and I may be a little bit off on the facts here, but, but this is the gist of it. They had a dog who, um, who went into the hospital that they work with. And this animal apparently, um, 
was uh, was suffering and it bit a technician and the clinic put the dog to sleep, right? They said, this, this pet is suffering. And the rescue then goes on to the internet on their Facebook page and they have six figures in Facebook fans. And they talk about how this heartless vet clinic, this emergency clinic didn't give the dog a chance and how could they just euthanize the dog? And there were some, you can imagine there's some rallies, but um, pieces about who was available and who was not and things like that. But the ultimate gist of it was this pet is suffering. It, it, it bites one of the technicians. Um, it needs to be put to sleep. That is the humane thing to do, the right thing to do. And, and so they put the animal to sleep and this, uh, rescue group attacks the vet clinic in front of a huge audience and says they never gave this dog a chance and just, and really went after him and, and by name and attacked them. And this was the first time that I saw a veteran medical association. So the Missouri VMA actually stepped up and released a statement and said, we do not agree with the coverage that is out there. This is not fair to these veterinarians and the business they're running. Um, this is not right. And sure enough, it really did seem to turn the tide. And that story kind of calmed down and, and went away. But I look to that as a ray of hope, honestly, for exactly what you're saying as far as toughening up and saying, you know what? The, the way you're treating these veterinarians is not okay. This is not um, this is not acceptable. And having outside people who are not involved even in the direct conflict say, these are the realities of medicine, and this is uh, this is what happened, and these veterinarians acted ethically and appropriately. And I was like, God, that's awesome. And so I I hope that we continue to see more candid conversations about that of 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 us supporting our own people and saying. This is not what you're putting forward is not a true narrative and it's not accurate and it's not fair. Yeah, that's really cool. And I haven't really seen that, actually. I, I didn't was, know about that case, but I haven't really seen that. And, and so maybe our VMAs do need to stand up. You know, obviously, you're not going to stand up for people if they're not doing things that are ethical. But, sure. it, you know, these cases, all these vets behaved ethically. And I would argue, like, went above and beyond, you know. There's there's no obligation to save the puppy, try to treat it, be there all night treating Parvo, try to find it a home. Like, how many of us have like homes just ready to like slot dogs and cats into? I mean, we've already used all those cards up, right? Like, <laughs> so right. I, like I you know, and I yeah, I think I think in those cases, like RVMAs do need to sort of stand up and say, well, this is actually the reality. This is a scenario because people will respect that more than just us trying to defend ourselves because they'll think we're all, I don't know. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Well, it really becomes sort of a, uh, he said, she said sort of, you know, one-on-one -on -one, you did this. No, I didn't kind of, kind of back and forth. It is nice to have an outside voice say, guys, this is the reality. Now, <laughs> when you come in from the outside, of course, you do open yourself up for, you know, for, for trolls and criticism. And there's a price, which is why I think so many of us sort of step back, um, and sort of step away from those things. And I, 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 I get that. And I, and I realize it, it's, it's just, it's an interesting period that we're going through. I think that, I think that consumers of media may be getting more savvy as well. And so I, I look at a lot of the like Yelp reviews, right. And Google reviews, and for a long time, what happened is if people looked at your business and there was a one-star review, they would go, oh my God, this, they got a one-star review. And we as veterinarians used to freak out about one-star review. 
And we still pay attention to it. And if it's valid, you should pay attention to it. But I think what has happened now over time is because we've been doing this review process long enough that we have all seen reviews that are not valid or not accurate, or the person who wrote them is just out of touch with reality. And I think that we as consumers look at these things and go, there's two sides to this story. I'm not 100% convinced the narrative I'm getting is accurate. And so I saw um, research out of Stanford University, and they were looking at Google reviews and Yelp reviews, and they were talking to people about trust. And what they found is that now people don't trust a business with a five-star review, like 5.0. Like, it's too good to be true. They trust people with a 4.5-star rating and, and, and a good number of reviews. They're like, that's right. Those people are probably doing a good job. And there are people who don't like them and people who have a random bad experience. But I think that I trust that that's probably going to be a good place to go. And so I, I'm hoping that people are becoming more savvy about taking one story they're hearing and and letting it affect their belief about about any any entity, any business, any person completely. Yeah, and those those low reviews, like they're all the same, right? Like the uh, the veterinary ones. I mean, the restaurant ones are too, to be honest. But like the ones that are really like you're like reading, you're like, eh. if you're really reading it, you're like, I don't know, there's some something weird went on. Like, I just can't see all the things that they're saying actually happened. Right. Um, so yeah, hopefully, I mean, we see that hopefully the consumer also sees that when they're looking for a veterinary clinic, but, and it's, it's just everywhere, right? And in, in every business, there's going to be that troll or that person who's had a bad experience and they're just raging on the internet. Right. And I'm, I'm hoping that as a society, we're, we're becoming more aware that that's just the norm. I think we've all seen it so many times now. So ho- hope, hopefully these types of stories will not have the impact that they've had as, as much impact as they've had in the past going forward. So that's, that's what I hope anyway. I like the hope, Andy. It's good. I come we with need, the optimism. We, you always do. Yeah. We need, we need that hope that things will get better. I, yeah, I, th- I, I, th- I think they will. You know, jumping back for a moment, the I think that you're right. When when we look at these cases as veterinarians on the outside, the thing that that gets me so much is the fact that it's not the veterinarian the veterinarians that that don't care. Let's say that's a small number. <coughs> Excuse me. They're not the ones who get into this mess. It's the one who goes above and beyond. It's the one who like wants this to work so much that they're lining up a home for this animal, you know, and they're working with the management to try to make this thing happen. And I think that, I think that process ends up raising the hopes and the expectations of the pet owner so much, or, or it brings them along on this emotional journey. And I think that that extra effort may end up being what tips the pet owner over over the edge and just ignites this whole thing. And I think that's why we sort of jokingly say no good deed goes unpunished because it feels that way. It really feels like when you really stretch for it, that's when you're most likely to get punished. And I feel like that's often these cases. Do you agree with that? Yeah. And I think that question you raise of it, you know, when the owner gets home and they don't have their dog anymore and then they start thinking about it, it's not like no one could afford it and no one could do anything. Um, that's comforting to an owner, right? Like I have lots of people that know I do cancer surgery and they'll always, they'll tell me something and they'll say, but no one could do anything. And I'm thinking, I mean, I'm a surgical oncologist and I'm like, "Mm, probably someone could, you know, like, but I don't say that of course, but it goes in my head. I'm like, 
But but what an owner needs to think to have peace with that whole situation is that they made the best decision and no one could do anything. And that gives them peace. So if you have the scenario of the parvo puppy that's going to die and you go to the vet and the vet says, this puppy could die, you have to pay whatever it is, $5,000 for treatment. They don't have it. And then you say, well, if you don't treat their good, your dog's going to die and I recommend euthanasia. And that's the entire transaction. Then their narrative, their story to themselves or to others is like, my puppy was so sick it was going to die. And we could have tried treatment, but it might not have even worked. And so I, I chose to euthanize my puppy. And hopefully they took a message of like, there's pet insurance out there. I should maybe do that next time. So I could try. But, you know, that narrative is actually easier to swallow than like, my puppy's still alive. It's yeah. probably going to be fine. Someone else has my dog. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not okay with that. So, I mean, that's something that we probably do need to think about because it does look really bad. The optics are terrible and the intention is good, but the optics are absolutely terrible. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the optics too, because you're right there from a PR standpoint, this doesn't end well for us. You know, like the veterinarian took the pet because they couldn't afford care and fixed it herself and kept it. Like that's a terrible story. <laughs> it really is. I mean, when, and you go, but that's not really what it is. And I know it's not really what it is. And you know, it's not really what it is. It doesn't matter. But when it's in a 140 character tweet or on Facebook, that is the narrative. I went in, my wonderful dog was hit by a car. I couldn't afford the treatment. So the veterinarian took my dog and fixed her and kept her for herself. That's that's horrible. And that's why that type of, that type of simple, emotional kind of fear, like what would you do if this happened to you? That injustice, you better believe that that's what lights people up and that's what gets attention and the media, like that's why they run with these stories. And so the optics are just awful. And, and I, I hate it, but it is true as we get punished in the court of public opinion. So laying all of these things down, the emotional blackmail on the staff, the optics, the, you know, the, um, the relationship with the clients, like all of these things. Do we stop talking about rehoming pets that can't be paid for? I think we at least curb it. I think we at least severely curb it. Like yeah. we don't have to save every single dog. And then one thing, you know, to think about is how many pets are being euthanized in humane societies every day. And they're beautiful, young, mostly healthy animals, but we don't, we don't see those, right? We just see the ones that are kind of in our face and they're broken. Um, and it's really sad. It's so sad. I mean, it's so sad. And I, and I, I understand the sentiment of like, I just don't, I don't want to euthanize another dog today. And I know I could fix this. It's so frustrating, but right. Lots of things are really frustrating that need to be fixed. So could we direct the energy other places? Could we direct the resources other places? You know, have a featured pet from the Humane Society up at your clinic so people maybe get, maybe that gets a home. Um, I mean, I have lots of ideas about that. So I, I think trying to direct that energy, which is good energy, it's, it's what we do. It's why we do. We want to save animals. Like, but can we direct that somewhere that is more positive than these things which do really get us in trouble. And people aren't going to really like that I said that. But I think, you know, if it's this 
perfect golden retriever puppy and you've been looking for a golden retriever puppy and it could just work out. And this is, you know, this is actually something you actually wanted <laughs> and now it's in front of you and you can like kind of solve the problem, maybe consider it, but it can't just be every single broken animal that comes in that we feel like we've got to fix it. And, and in some ways for those owners, it might give them more peace, which is part of what we're supposed to be doing. It might give them more peace to just have a closure that they can understand and that they can relate to people. Because how do you tell someone that? I don't have my puppy anymore because I couldn't afford it, but someone else has my puppy. I mean, that's terrible. That looks terrible. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, when I talk to veterinarians who have dealt with severe compassion fatigue, with burnout, with depression and mental illness, it's amazing to me how often these are the veterinarians who go home to a house full of pets that require continuous and ongoing care. You know, it's, um, I don't, I don't know how, I can't speak with any certainty. I, can, I don't have any data to back this up, but I think that a lot of us work all day in the clinic and we give of ourselves and we pour our heart and souls into what we do. And then we go home at the end of the day to a house full of animals that require our continued affection, care, you know, we pour our heart and soul into into the animals that we have at home, you know, how many veterinarians have fluid bags hanging in their bathroom, you know, and things like that. And I just, when you look at our profession and the compassion fatigue and the burnout and things like that, I don't, I don't know that this is healthy. And I just want to be real clear, you know, Sarah and I, we <laughs> love, we love Sorry, being veterinarians. We love that so much. Our dogs are barking on our podcast. We, yeah. We, <laughs> we love, Sorry. we love what we do. And, and, and we, we, we don't want to put animals asleep. Like that's not, you know what I mean? Like, like that's, that's, that's not it. But I think that at some point we start to have to have a, a larger discussion about what is healthy for our profession. Like, are we really helping animals if we burn out and quit, you know, um, and quit the profession? Are we really doing more good over the course of our careers? I think the answer is no. And so I think maybe these, these boundaries are important. When you said, we take a burden off the pet owners sometimes by giving them closure, by taking some options off the table. I think you're exactly right. I wonder if the same is not true for our staff when we say, guys, we don't take pets. We do not take pets here. And I'm not, guys, I'm not saying that's what you should do. There's not a proposal. And just, I'm just thinking it through. If your clinic says that is not an option that is on the table, you might go, crap, I wish that we could do that. But I also wonder if you wouldn't feel a burden kind of taken off of you as I don't have to justify my decision not to do this or I don't have to feel pressure to do this because that decision has already been removed by sort of a higher power. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, and there's always going to be exceptions, but I think there should be sort of a general rule and then there's the exception. But I also think, you know, you kind of made me think of this when people, they're they're just bending over backwards, have to go talk to the manager, try to arrange this. Oh, maybe there's a surgeon I know who could come in, come and do the surgery for me. And I'll make, you know, I'll make them feel like they should do that or else this dog's going to die. Like, I'll just tell everyone <laughs> the dog's going to die unless they help me. And it's like, it's amazing. But then maybe you should do research, like rescue work. Maybe that's your calling, right? Like, that's amazing, the veterinarians who do that. I know someone in Cambridge, Ontario, and she runs a practice and she does almost full-time rescue work. And it's incredible. But that's that's what she's doing. And so if that's your calling and you want to do that, then then maybe that's you know, maybe that's your place. But in a veterinary clinic or an emergency hospital, it's pretty hard to do both. 
and and it I, I think it does sometimes create some problems for us and and potentially for the client. I mean, some of those options you give them, you can give them the payment plan, but if they don't have five thousand bucks, they're not going to have it in three months. Like, is that a, is you know? I think it's good to tell them it's available, but I have a lot of clients who are just like, well, like no, like I'm I'm not I'm not seeing a future with me having <laughs> the money. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think I think you want to be careful with the options that we give. No, I, I think I think you're exactly right there. I, I think I think what you hit on the head for me is we you and I are not on here saying we shouldn't help pets. Like that's not how we feel. I think that we're both saying there's a time and a place and a way that we can help pets. And there are times and places and ways that are honestly not necessarily healthy or reasonable for us to help pets. And so the the point of optimism, I guess, that I would leave, leave with is to say, I, I think we do ourselves a disservice sometimes when we've been this far. And I think that we're getting, and I hate it, but I think we're getting to a place where we are taking a lot of liability and a lot of risk and a lot of things go bad. And I think more and more often we're getting burned when we do things like this. But the optimistic part is to say, I have not given up on my desire to help pets and help animals and help pets that, that who have owners who don't have the financial resources to provide care. I think we all want that. I think we need to be smart and honest about how we can help them get it. And so that may very well mean doing some rescue work, having a component of our practice that is rescue work that is well-defined in how it works and what it does so that I don't feel like, God, I'm not, I'm not doing enough. I am doing enough and I'm doing it through these pathways and I do it this way. I think that, um, that we should continue to work on and talk about how we can financially support pet owners that, that can't pay for services. And I think that, um, I, I, I talk a lot about angel funds in the vet clinic I like the idea of vet clinics having a saving mechanism where we say, okay, guys, we have this much money this month that we are going to do charity work with. And then, and then when that pet comes in, like there's a mechanism where we might be able to help them. And if we can't help them. It's because we've already done all the pro bono work this month that we can do, but we did that work. And that was the choice that we made. And you know what I mean? And, and we all go home knowing that we still have done as much good as we could do while keeping our practice healthy. So the other part that I keep in my head, whenever I talk about what do we do about pets and how do we help owners that have financial constraints, I hold the technicians in my other hand and I look at the technicians and I look at these people who I think so highly of who bust their ass for us all day, every day, and they make $12 an hour and too many of them don't have healthcare here in the States, you know? Um, and I go, they deserve more and they deserve better. And so I have got to, as the veterinarian, I feel personal responsibility to help make this practice healthy so that they can earn a living wage, you know what I mean? So that they can have a job that, that pays them something approaching what they're worth. Because I, I always say this, I dream of a world where vet techs get paid what they're worth. We cannot run financially unhealthy practices and make that a reality. So I, I hold both of those things in my hand. And that's why I'm really big on, let's figure out how we're going to do good in the world. Let's make some rules about how we're going to do good in the world. Let's go into this with eyes wide open and a clear plan, some, you know, some boundaries and let's do good in the world. And then when there's places where we can't help, 
let's step away with the knowledge that we are we are doing what we can and I can't help you now, but I'm going to do more good in the long run. Uh, one other thing you kind of just made me think of is I don't think veterinary clinics should be in the business of owning animals. You know what I mean? That animal should never be signed over to a clinic. If you, there's some really amazing rescue groups out there that are really good at fundraising and they want to do that and that's, that's what they're doing. So, you know, maybe that's an option. I still think there's some issues there, but maybe that's all between the pet owner and the rescue group. And if the rescue group takes over the pet and the rescue group becomes your client and you care for that pet, great. But it, the, we shouldn't own animals. Like, we're, we're veterinary hospitals. I mean, just think about how absurd that is. You know, right. it, it, we really shouldn't be owning pets. Like, they should belong to someone and there should be a client and we should be the doctor and the nurses that care for the pet, but they shouldn't somehow become ours and, and our responsibility and our problem, actually. Like, I know that doesn't sound very sensitive, but that, that's the reality. That's what they become. So whether it's an angel fund that you can keep the pet with that owner or whether it's you work with a rescue group that becomes the owner, I just don't think we should become the owner. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to, to have you on here and, and talk with you is because, you know, you are... Uh, you're one of my favorite people to talk to. You are completely fearless and you are so honest. And I've always respected the hell out of you for that. And, um, and that's why I want to have this conversation with you is like, there are some parts of this that are hard and they're not fun, but I think ultimately we have to be honest about what are the impacts on the pets? What are the impacts on the pet owners? What are the impacts on our technicians and on ourselves and on our mental health? You know what I mean? And on the viability of our practices, and we have to we have to be honest in those things and then start to develop solutions that actually work. But a lot of the fly by the seat of our pants stuff that we're doing right now is not working and it's getting us in trouble. And it's, I think it's going to get worse. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's that interwebs. Yeah. Problem, Andy. <laughs> makes it makes it hard. <laughs> gosh, gosh, darn you. It's, internet. The, it's the interwebs. All right. Well, cool. Well, Sarah, (laughs) thanks for getting on and talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, It's so great to talk to you, Andy. All right. Cool. I'll talk to you later. Okay.